I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hey, listeners, just a heads up. This is a long one because we're giving you two episodes in one this week. So listen for parts one and two. In our very first episode, I said that I hadn't been able to get anyone from Paladin to talk to me. We've tried a lot of former employees and authors, and everybody seemed hesitant. But over the last two weeks, we got some replies. My name is David Dubrow. I worked for Paladin Press between 1998 and 2010. David grew up in a suburb outside Philadelphia. A few years after he'd graduated from college, he was working in a supermarket, and he needed a change. At the time, I was very much into fantasy role-playing games like Dungeons & Dragons, that kind of thing. Not necessarily D&D, but, you know, fantasy role-playing text-based over the internet called a Telnet Protocol. He made some friends through this online game called Amber. They invited him out to Colorado, and he figured, what the hell? Okay, I'm going to drive out there, and I'm going to see if I can make my life out in Colorado. At the time, there was no Monster, there was no LinkedIn. So you went looking for a real job through the one edge of the paper. I know it sounds kind of ancient, but that was what we did. David answered a nondescript ad for an entry-level customer service gig and got an interview. And that company was Paladin Press. It was very kind of secret. It was very kind of hush-hush. I didn't know at the time what I was getting into. So far in this podcast, we've spent a lot of time on the triple murder-for-hire case of Millie and Trevor Horn and Janice Saunders. When we last left you, Lawrence Horn and James Perry were both found guilty of murder and conspiracy to commit murder. So the two men responsible for this crime would be paying for it for the rest of their lives. Meanwhile, the media couldn't stop talking about Hitman. A gruesome triple murder shocked the Washington, D.C. area. Today, it has become the subject of a First Amendment fight over a how-to book on murder. The killer apparently went by the book. This book, Hitman, a technical manual for independent contractors. It's a very compelling correlation between the way these murders were carried out and the suggestions in the book. Now, family members want the murder manual's publisher to pay. All that attention introduced a lot of people to Paladin and its enigmatic owner, Peter Lund. So I go out there and and I do this interview, and the owner of the company, he's there, he's he's wearing these like short pants and this polo shirt, and he's got a handgun on the desk. What's funny is that I'm this upper middle class Jewish kid from Philly. Things like self-defense and martial arts and knife fighting, they're, they're not relevant to my life experience, like guns or what other people do. Still, he was intrigued. And they showed me a catalog and they said, all right, well, why don't you take a look at it? And then tomorrow um, we'll call you back if you're still interested. And I did. And I was like, this is neat stuff. I mean, you know, I'm a young man. I could either do customer service for a a company that publishes these kinds of books and videos, or I could be, you know, the executive assistant of, you know, the Boulder Philharmonic Orchestra conductor. I'm like, all right, there's no real competition here. So I started that next week. David says the company wasn't quite what you'd expect from the content. 
Pater was very adamant about not hiring a bunch of cami-clad wackos, which is, you know, how we kind of called it. There was at least as many women as men who worked for Paladin Press. The vast majority of the people who worked for Paladin didn't have a real interest in the subject matter, which was kind of interesting sometimes to work around. But it was amazingly prosaic how boring the office work was. It wasn't like everybody was walking around with uh, AR-15 slung over his back, that kind of thing. A Washington Post article from the year David was hired described Lund sitting in a modest office at an old wooden desk with his green beret tacked to the wall, piles of manuscripts everywhere. Peter wasn't a big guy either, but he had this fierce face and he had these eyebrows. And if he was mad with you, you would know it. I never played poker with him, but I imagine I would probably be able to beat him a few times just because he wouldn't keep it off his face. Lund wore reading glasses and knee-high socks. He'd spent half the year residing in a 14th-century cottage in the Cotswolds, England, where he hunted pheasant and trained a racehorse named Miss Optimist. Not exactly what I pictured. This was London in his late 50s. Well, Peter was, a, was an engaging fellow. In 1986, terrorism expert Neil Livingstone was a consultant for the ABC News show 2020, and he helped produce an episode about Lund and Paladin Press. He and a crew flew to Boulder and spent the day with Lund in his office. I found Peter to be polite, unassuming, unpretentious. Uh, uh, he ran a very neat business, uh, very, you know, was very clean and very well organized and so on. He described the things that he published as burn and blow books, uh, how to burn things down and blow things up. He was rather unfazed by the notion that his books might be used uh, by terrorists or killers. He said that we don't tell people how to use the information. Honestly, there's a lot we don't know about Pater Klassen Lund, even after all this time. We know he was born in 1942. Livingstone told us he was born in South Africa, but he couldn't actually remember if that was right. He was married four times, according to a Washington Post article, and didn't have any kids. His military records are impressive. He served in the U.S. Army from 1964 to 1968, and then in the Army Reserve for two more years. He was recognized as an expert gunner and a sharpshooter, and he was a decorated veteran, having received the National Defense Service Medal, Vietnam Service Medal, Purple Heart Parachute Badge, and the Bronze Star, among others. And he was quoted in a Soldier of Fortune magazine article as saying he was an infantry platoon leader and rose to be commander of a special forces A-team and was in charge of stopping North Vietnamese supply routes. And that's about all we have, at least about his life before Paladin. Lund called himself a classic individualist, and he really was. You know, he's wearing his shorts and his polo shirt. He's got this revolver on his, on his desk, you know, and it's like... Holy shit, this is the closest I've ever been to a handgun that hasn't been inside a police officer's holster. And the thing is, he always had a handgun on the desk until we changed, you know, cleaning services, and then it became kind of an issue. But um, he, he had a very strong feeling about the First Amendment and how inviolate it was. I mean, he was, you know, he was who he was, and if you didn't like him, you could eat shit and die. I'm Jasmine Morris from iHeartRadio and Hit Home Media. This is Hitman. You know, it was early days of internet when I started in 98. At the time, we got orders through the mail and via telephone, mostly through the mail. We would send out catalogs for free to anybody. We got plenty of requests for catalogs from people who were in prison. You know, I guess it was kind of like a jerk-off magazine for, for violence instead of porn, you know, but um, it just had the products and the, and, the, and the covers and stuff. It didn't have any real content to speak of. Playboy magazine once called Paladin, quote, the most dangerous publisher in America. And it was a nickname that stuck. It does make a good kind of tagline, right? It's something that you can use 
to impress people who are impressed by that. You know, we didn't call ourselves the most dangerous publisher in America. We called ourselves the Action Library. And I think that was a term of art that Peter created. And that's what it was about. It was about, you know, action versus danger, which is different. There's a value judgment in danger. When you think about it, okay, what does that mean, dangerous publisher? Information isn't dangerous. It's what you do with it that's dangerous. Paladin Press was just this small, independent publisher serving a niche audience in a liberal college town in Colorado. But it would become so influential in ways that most independent publishers never could and never would dream of. Unfortunately, Peter Lund died in 2017, so we can't hear from him directly. One person we reached out to for more insight into Lund's life insisted that we talk to Robert K. Brown, the publisher of the mercenary magazine Soldier of Fortune, who he said knew Lund better than most. The next day, we got a call from a Boulder, Colorado phone number, and a gruff but friendly voice on the other end introduced himself as Bob Brown. Brown is 86 now. He's sharp, very polite, and he prefers to get straight to the point. He heard we were doing a story on Paladin and Lund, and he was calling us back because his friend said we were good people. The call was quick. Brown is quite hard of hearing, so phone calls are difficult these days. And he respectfully declined to be interviewed. But he offered to email us some information on Paladin and Lund, and with an OK Darlin, the call was over. The two men met back in the early 1960s. Brown was about 10 years older than Lund, but they both had military backgrounds and were attracted to the idea of mercenary work, fighting communism in foreign countries. Most of the time, Brown mentions Lund in his memoir, I Am Soldier of Fortune. It's about these near misses, adventures they almost had. There was the plot to invade Cuba and rescue some refugees. That was back in Miami in 1963. But it plays like a Looney Tunes adventure, where their boat gets stuck in the mud, they didn't pack enough food, and the guns didn't show up in time. There was a treasure hunt in Papua New Guinea, gold supposedly hidden by a crooked priest. The time they tried to parachute into Peru to deliver aid to a secluded mountain village buried by a landslide. Brown actually laid the groundwork for Paladin himself in 1963, the same year he tried to invade Cuba with Lund. First of all, what was Paladin Press? This was a book company that put out books for soldiers, put out books on how to build bombs, how to do Here's Brown on a Colorado public affairs things. show. And it was also not very popular. Definitely not. Well, it was an offshoot of a publishing company I started way back in 1963 uh, when I published a book called 150 Questions for a Gorilla. Back then, Brown called his publishing house Panther Publications. Paladin's website once said this early work really set the tone for the publisher's future. Quote, it would be first to print books about controversial or suppressed subjects. And it would also be criticized for publishing works that some people found objectionable. Brown is an adventurous and charismatic Vietnam vet with a colorful military history. We found him on the Army Register from 1969. And in various interviews and in his memoir, I Am Soldier of Fortune, Brown talks about serving in the Army in the 50s and eventually rising to lieutenant colonel in intelligence. He says he was also kicked out of the Special Forces twice. He dabbled in journalism, picking up freelance assignments for the Associated Press. And he once told a reporter that he planned to inscript his tombstone with his motto, Slay dragons, do noble deeds, and never, 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 never give up. When Brown first started Panther Publications, he was mostly publishing military manuals, like the Special Forces Handbook. They were publishing military manuals because they weren't classified. They had free material to use. That's Michigan State Professor Ann Larrabee, an expert on bomb-making manuals. There's an army manual called Booby Traps, for example. That really dangerous stuff comes from directly reprinted army manuals, or they would somehow take them and rearrange them and cobble them together in some way to form new versions of these manuals. The war in Vietnam has literally become a fight on two fronts. Well, it was definitely a very unsettled time in the culture. Vietnam vets, when they came home, they were not exactly welcomed with open arms. Paladin has always been pretty zeitgeisty. 150 Questions for a Gorilla by Alberto Bayo, 
who was credited with training Fidel Castro's fighters, came out just after the Cuban Missile Crisis. They were putting out military manuals during the Vietnam War. A lot of the interest in these kinds of manuals is attached in various ways to veterans who had military experience, who also had read military manuals and who brought them home. And they maintained a continued interest in uh, this kind of military identity. Brown identified a niche, an audience, saw them clearly because he was one of these guys. And then he made and marketed things for them. Here's how Anne Larrabee describes the appeal of these books. It's a kind of maverick masculinity. Um, You can see it in a lot of the Paladin books, for example. There's a certain kind of masculine identity that keeps being repeated. And it's this this guy who, he's not beholden to anyone. Um, He's not beholden to any nation or any state or any set of ideas. He's this maverick who can take care of himself and who has the violent means to defend himself. But eventually, that tight core audience of disaffected Vietnam vets gave way to something else, maybe less authentic. Again, here's David Dubrow. Most people, they buy this stuff, they read it, and they never do anything about it. They never actually do it. They just wanted the knowledge. They just wanted to have the thing and be cool and to know that, hey, man, I've got this information now, and it's maybe counterculture, and I can pretend to be a badass. It doesn't mean that they weren't badasses. I don't know. But the point is, you know, most people, the vast majority of them just didn't practice it. In 1970, using the name Panther became a major liability. Two members of the Black Panthers were convicted and sentenced to life in prison for the murder of a Nebraska police officer who died opening a suitcase filled with homemade explosives. Others had been arrested for planning to bomb department stores, including the Macy's in Midtown Manhattan. And how were the Panthers learning to make bombs and wage guerrilla warfare? Well, some of their underground publications were directing subscribers to check out a printing house, Panther Publications. Congress noticed in the Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations, led by Arkansas Senator John L. McClellan, summoned owner Robert K. Brown to testify. Here's Ann Larrabee again. It's kind of an entertaining mistake that they thought that Robert K. Brown was a Black Panther, (laughs) that he had named Panther publications after the Black Panthers, because that's who they were really after. We couldn't get the audio of this because it's still on reel to reel. So I'm going to read the senator's questions, and I asked my husband to read Robert K. Brown's parts. Senator McClellan began the questioning. Do you feel that by this kind of activity, you're contributing to the violence that is occurring in this country and to building up of a guerrilla movement in America? No more than General Motors, in respect possibly to the Black Panthers driving a General Motors car to conduct a bombing. People advertise weapons for sale too, but they don't advertise that it is to be used for murdering people. McClellan looked closely in one of Brown's book ads. This says guerrilla warfare. It says that is the purpose of it. What other purpose do you advertise it for if you did not say guerrilla warfare in the documents you sent out? Simply because we describe guerrilla warfare does not mean that we are promoting guerrilla warfare within the United States, sir. By this kind of publication, you are, in a sense, advocating and encourage guerrilla warfare in the United States. I disagree with you. I am not encouraging it. You do so by making available the things that are needed to carry it out successfully. The book itself does not pick up a gun, Senator. We'll be right back. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, the Apollo Jim murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with the Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. 
Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. She's breathing right now? Yes, she's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. After the Senate inquiry, Panther Publications became Paladin Press. Brown didn't want any more government types, confusing him with the Black Panthers. And his old friend, Peter Lund, joined the company as co-owner. In an interview on a Colorado public affairs show, Robert K. Brown put it this way. I got together with Peter Lund. Uh, He had money. I had none. We put the company together with his input of cash, and that started Paladin Press. That happened in 1970. Then I sold my interests out in 1974. By the time Lund officially joined Paladin in 1970, the FBI had begun investigating how they came to publish these official military technical manuals. But they quickly realized these manuals were in the public domain. Again, Anne Larrabee. The Army tried to pull them back. It reclassified some of its manuals, and it also wrote to libraries and asked them to send back their copies of things like booby traps and other kinds of manuals. They tried to haul them back, but it was too late. They were already well-seated out there through these paramilitary publishers. In addition to asking for these manuals back, officials approached libraries and asked to see a log of everyone who had checked out one of these books. The librarians were up in arms because they really saw it as an assault on the right to read. And because these books weren't classified, the libraries owned them. They really took offense at the Treasury Department coming out and putting them under some kind of surveillance. The American Library Association took a very significant stand against government interference and people's right to read. That was their platform. Here's a moment where Paladin really does seem like it's fighting the good fight for the First Amendment, which protects a lot of the freedoms that have really come to be associated with what America means. Freedom of religion, the right to peaceably assemble and protest, and most importantly for our story, the right to free speech and a free press. It was a platform that would also serve Paladin Press for decades. Brown and Lund ran Paladin together for four years, until Brown got itchy feet. That's how he puts it in his book. He sold his stake in Paladin Press to Lund for just $15,000 and returned to mercenary work, this time in Rhodesia. Again from his memoir, 
Quote, All sorts of adventurers, ne'er-do-wells, and fugitives from all over the world were headed for the land of hired guns. Some intend on fighting the communist-backed terrorists, and others just to kick some butt. Not long after, he founded Soldier of Fortune. That magazine would advertise for Paladin. They advertised the Hitman book, too, which is actually how detectives believed James Perry discovered it. Referred to as the Journal of Professional Adventurers, the monthly magazine published stories of mercenaries fighting wars all over the world and quickly gained a following. In an interview with Newsmax, Brown explains what set the reporting in his magazine apart. Some journalists did appreciate what we were doing and the quality of journalism we were coming up with, but certainly the fact that we were involved in training uh, various and sundry groups. Uh, the one that comes to mind, of course, is the Contras in Central America and also in El Salvador. Most journalists took exception to the fact that we carried guns everywhere we went, and if uh, we get fired upon, we uh, fired back. That being said, uh, we really didn't give a uh, hoot uh, what the other journalists said, and needless to say, none of them uh, ever wanted to challenge us physically. In the back of the magazine, there were also classified ads for things like ninja lessons, gun silencers, and job ads for guns for hire. In 1985, a man would answer an ad in Soldier of Fortune to hire a guy to kill his wife. A jury in a wrongful death lawsuit found the magazine negligent, although a circuit court of appeals later reversed the verdict. That same year, Four hitmen, also advertising in Soldier of Fortune, killed a man named Richard Braun. Again, a jury found the magazine negligent, and the case was settled out of court. And shortly after that, an Arkansas man suffered injuries when he was attacked by two men, one who had advertised in the magazine. When the judge suggested the magazine ad was not protected under the First Amendment, Brown settled. So in 1986, Soldier of Fortune stopped publishing ads for hired guns, though Brown never claimed personal responsibility for the deaths, telling the New York Times, I feel I should be no more concerned about that than the auto dealer who sells a car that runs somebody down. Peter Lund had the same view, and while Brown stopped publishing some controversial content, Lund started publishing it. Under his helm, Paladin actually expanded way beyond official military manuals in guerrilla warfare. Books about revenge, mayhem, explosives, survivalism, and contract killing. Just to be clear, Paladin Press published books and videos on a wide variety of topics. One Paladin author described it as ranging from outlandish to legitimate training. By the early 90s, Paladin went mainstream. By then, the book The Ultimate Sniper was considered an authority and was required reading for professional snipers in training with law enforcement and the military. Bob Dole wrote the foreword to a paladin book about skiing. And the humorous book Get Even, the complete book of dirty tricks, sat on shelves at Barnes & Noble. The company was offering 700 print titles and selling as many as 350,000 books a year. Lund was employing more than 25 people, and Paladin was a place where you could move up if you had the right work ethic and if the boss liked you. And David was often one of the first to arrive at the office. You know, I would get in there and then, like, Peter's already, he's in that upstairs office kitchen, you know, frying up pork chops at 5.45 in the morning. And, you know, the joke was, I mean, like, you haven't lived until you've, you know, had pork chops with Peter at 5.45 in the morning. He just loved meat, man. He, he ate a lot of meat. David was eventually promoted to manager of Paladin's video production department. Peter was not a guy who gives attaboys. Uh, Peter was the kind of boss who said, look, man, you're doing good. You know you're doing good because I haven't chickened you. He preferred to let people do what they were supposed to do, and then he would do what he had to do. Lund treated his employees well. He paid benefits. He threw big Christmas parties. He allowed employees to take hiking breaks midday. And every other year, he took his workers and their spouses on a retreat to Mexico. Turnover was low. Though we won't get into it here, it's worth noting that in 2007, Lund was sued for sexual harassment. It apparently came out in testimony that Lund regularly walked around the office wearing nothing but a towel. 
he made unwelcome sexual advances to female employees, and once, while handing out annual bonuses, asked the women in the office to give him a kiss before handing out the checks. Anyway, David eventually became an author himself. The first book I ever wrote was a book for Paladin Press, and it was called The Ultimate Guide to Surviving a Zombie Apocalypse. Zombies were becoming a big thing, and I'm like, you know something that the Paladin audience, I bet there are a bunch of people who are interested in zombies too. So how do I write a Paladin book about this kind of subject? Paladin's website once said, quote, Lund seeks out authors who are knowledgeable in their fields and encourages them to write for his audience. By publishing books no other publisher will touch and encouraging authors to tell their own stories, he has earned their loyalty and assured their success. Many authors have established themselves as experts in certain areas. So even when it came to killing zombies, this had to be expert zombie killing. What I did was I did research, I talked to people, I, I, I got information from the books and videos and magazines that I'd read, and I collated it into this book about how to survive a zombie apocalypse, taking survival skills and handgun skills and knife fighting and everything else and combining it into this thing where, okay, this is how you get yourself out of this fictitious jam. And like some other Paladin authors, David took up a pseudonym, F. Kim O'Neill. Dave Dubro, a video guy, doesn't have credibility, whereas a, a made-up, you know, army veteran who's actually seen a real zombie, you know, he does have credibility. I mean, he's right. But there was another reason some authors did this. Every once in a while, a few people wrote books under uh, pseudonyms just because they didn't want to get in trouble. In the Paladin catalog, there are lots of macho-sounding pen names, like Ragnar Benson, George Hayduke, Rex Farrell. I mean, like it or not, somebody who hasn't thought about this kind of stuff, right? You say, hey, man, you know, they, they say, so what do you do? And I say, well, you know, I work for Paladin Press. You know, we're a publisher. Oh, yeah, what do you publish? You know, books, uh, videos on martial arts, self-defense, that kind of thing. Oh, yeah, what kind of titles? Oh, well, you know, like, put them down, take them out. My Fighting Secrets of Folsom Prison. Oh, my gosh, what are you guys doing? I'm like, that's awful. That sounds terrible. What's wrong with you? There are a bunch of people who are, who are just going to be turned off by that and say you're the writer of a book like that. You know, maybe it, it doesn't quite grease the social skids the way you would think. All of this reminds me of that correspondence I found from Rex Farrell, something we haven't talked about since the first episode. Quote, by the way, in answer to your question and that of Mr. Lund, I get my materials from books, television, movies, newspapers, police officers, my karate instructor, and a good friend who is an attorney. No, I am not a hitman. I don't even own a gun. But don't tell anybody. But even though some of Paladin's authors weren't experts at all, sometimes the consequences of sharing their expertise were very real. We'll take another look at Paladin in part two. Stay with us. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way. Knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with the Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. She's breathing right now? Yes, she's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, 
and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. These are how-to guides on how to do nothing more then create violence, chaos, anti-government, bigoted violence. They teach you how to build bombs. They teach you how to build guns. They provide, you know, motivation and, and encouragement. That's Vincent Cefalu, a retired special agent for the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, and the author of a book called Rat Snakes, about his career as an undercover officer. He worked mob cases, drug trafficking, and contract killing. That's why we called Vince in the first place. He actually posed as a hitman many times, so he has a unique view into this world. The people who, who I've approached in an undercover capacity have come from every walk of life. We asked him, who tries to hire hitmen? For the most part, I'm usually a little bit baffled that the middle-income soccer mom or the local football coach or your regular neighbors Um, would even consider taking an act like that. But yes, it's amazing how many people I've talked to about murdering a loved one. It's, It's a little disturbing, needless to say. So when he says he's seen a lot of Paladin books, including Hitman in the Wrong Hands, I'm gonna believe him. I've come across the book in the hands of all types of gangsters subversive groups, white supremacist groups, biker groups, drug dealers, you know, anti-government protest type groups. It's not something we would necessarily look for, but it's something we would recognize immediately upon executing a search warrant or being, say, if I walked into an undercover environment working some sort of case and somebody had that book, Hitman or the Anarchist Cookbook, I'm I'm already drawing conclusions about this person that their level of seriousness is a little bit higher than maybe just bluster or, you know, running their pie hole. We've been narrowly focused on Hitman throughout this podcast because of its link to the Horn Perry murders. But the influence of Paladin books in general is much, much wider. Reminds me of something I've said before. This isn't just one story. It's 50. Well, I created the fictional company Hawkeye Enterprises in a separate town from the university town where I was at the time, um, believing that was the kind of name that would seem right up the alley of people at Paladin or Soldier of Fortune and others whose mailing lists I might get on. Criminologist Dr. Park Dietz has spent more than a decade studying Paladin, Soldier of Fortune, and other publishers putting out similar books. It seemed to me that it was wise if I was going to be digging around in an arguably dangerous network of people to shield my family and friends from what I was up to there. And I got on every wacky mailing list you can imagine 
Some of it was legitimate, but some of it was also unlawful solicitations. For example, one particular person who was well-known in those circles had a publication in which he was offering to sell mail-order cyanide. And this is in the wake of the Tylenol tamperings, which in 1982 um, became the second most publicized crime in history. The Chicago Tylenol murders, as they became known, were a series of deaths caused by product tampering when someone laced Tylenol capsules with potassium cyanide. Among those killed, a 12-year-old girl and three people from the same family. The crime sparked a number of copycat incidents, and Dietz was hired by the Food and Drug Administration and the pharmaceutical industry to investigate. And I looked for where someone could learn to do such a crime and found the only source for such information at the time to be palette and press publications and publications by a handful of other publishers of similar materials. He's referring to publishers like Lumpanix and Delta Press, though Paladin has been described as the principal publisher of this kind of content. According to Dietz, The Poor Man's James Bond, published by Paladin, gives recipes for potassium cyanide and sodium cyanide. He believed that book, and a couple other Paladin titles, had inspired the Tylenol killings. The culprit was never found. Lund had a memorable response to Dietz's findings, that in the wrong hands, Paladin books could be dangerous. He told author Eric Larson, quote, I really can't be bothered by him. If you take 200,000 people, you're going to find two or three who don't wear underwear, four or five who cultivate bonsai trees, six or eight who've shaved their heads. There's no statistical validity to the man's conclusions. It's as if you went to a party last night and met five people who were divorced and decided the divorce rate had gone up catastrophically. Here's Lund in a rare appearance he made on 60 Minutes with Mike Wallace. Why do you publish these things? It's market-driven, Mike. If there's Money. If, if, absolutely. Again, terrorism expert Neil Livingstone. He had this very warped view that uh, he wasn't doing anything morally uh, questionable. It was uh, just business, and uh, it was great that he could have such a business in the United States. He wasn't there to decide who could and could not buy his books. What you're saying is, no matter what pain is caused, I'm a defender of the First Amendment and my right to make money from these books. I'm saying that ideas and knowledge don't kill people. People kill people. We've been talking about how the content in these books could have and have had consequences. But what if this content wasn't allowed? What about those consequences? We're talking about censorship. And maybe you're thinking, but Paladin, it's such a fringe example. Well, the Freedom Forum's National First Amendment Ombudsman, Paul McMasters, once said, that's where you fight the First Amendment battles. You fight them on the fringes, or you fight them on the frontiers, or the next thing you know, you're fighting them on your front porch. So for the most part, Paladin Press was safe. But Livingstone also goes on to say this. It can be used as evidence of intent later on if someone carried out a crime. Is it true that Timothy McVeigh ordered one of their books? I think I read that somewhere. Yeah, he did, but uh, he would have found it totally useless. That's Tom Kelly, a press lawyer who represented Paladin. Timothy McVeigh, the domestic terrorist who murdered 168 people in the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing, was found to have owned several Paladin books, including one called Homemade C4, a recipe for survival. Now, it's worth noting that C4 was not the explosive that McVeigh used. He built a truck bomb using nitrogen fertilizer. But the book was used in his trial as evidence that he had the knowledge to build explosives. In fact, Paladin's own finance director, Dana Rogers, had to read the catalog description from the witness stand. Quote, Serious survivors knew the day may come when they need something more powerful than commercial dynamite or common improvised explosives. 
for blowing bridges, shattering steel, and derailing tanks. They need C4. Oh wait, here's another one. Remember the 51-day standoff between federal agents and the members of the Branch Davidians, a religious cult back in 1993? This siege ended with a massive fire that took over the Waco, Texas compound, killing 75 people. This raid was made possible by a search warrant, which was secured in part because agents heard the head of this cult was trying to get his hands on the anarchist cookbook, the most notorious how-to book on making explosives and weapons, among other things, and it was distributed and advertised by Paladin Press. I actually found a list of, quote, crimes involving Paladin Press publications and some court documents. I'm just going to read them to you. Here goes. The murders committed by America's first female serial killer, Sylvia Segrist, Kip Kinkle of Springfield, Oregon, who killed his parents before engaging in a shooting rampage. The murder of talk show host Alan Berg by The Order in Colorado. Attempted spousal homicide by William Chancellor in Texas. Murder of a grocery store manager by Stephen Redd in California. Spousal homicide by Michelle Williams in Ohio. Extortion and loan sharking by Lawrence Tubiolo of Arizona. Attempted bombing by Robert A. Strickland in Florida. Solicitation of murder by Robert G. Lees of Washington. The manufacture of 50 illegal silencers by Carl Genova of New York. Triple homicide by Dana Ewell of California. Murder and attempted murder by package bomb by Dominic Perry in Australia. Triple homicide by Tony Duong in California. Robberies by by Terry Adams and Matthew Taylor in Tennessee. Letter bombs by Raymond Neal Best in Alberta, Canada. Attempted bombing of police chief by Terrence Rolls in Alberta, Canada. Four murders by Lester Leroy Bauer Jr. of Texas. And triple homicide at the Mildred Horn residence in Maryland. Multiple murders, bombings, robberies, extortion... And Paladin Press was protected under the First Amendment in every single one of these cases. That is, until the murders of Millie and Trevor Horn and Janice Saunders. That's the case that changed legal history. Pater himself, you know, he, uh, it was funny, he kind of went through a change over time from an adventurer himself. You know, he was a former Special Forces A-team leader in Vietnam. He was a man who was used to violence and, and had actually seen it. You know, I mean, there's a difference between somebody who has to put sights on somebody and pull the trigger versus somebody who doesn't. And it's not necessarily a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a thing. And that's something that Pater had to do. And not only that, the cultural shift over time, I think he got kind of disillusioned with. He was very much a, a man of the 70s and, and, and 80s and not so much uh, the, the 2000s. People moving away from can-do more toward what can you do for me, um, I think helped him shift away from that. I first started looking into this story back in 2015, when Paladin Press was still very much in business. That's when I made my first call to their offices in Boulder, and the very mention of the book Hitman ended that conversation quickly. But I'd always imagined someday I'd be able to interview Peter Lund for this podcast. I was going to keep trying. And then, in June 2017... He died suddenly on vacation in Finland. Apparently, he was on his way to Russia. He was 75 years old. I was shocked. The official Paladin statement said, quote, Pedar was always a doer, and we at Paladin take comfort in the fact that he died doing what he loved most. A lot of Lund's life is a mystery, and his death is going to remain one, too. A Soldier of Fortune social media post said that he'd been found unconscious in his hotel room and could not be revived. He'd lost sight in one eye a few years back, they said, but otherwise had no serious health issues. A post on Guns.com said he was, quote, killed while on vacation. That's a weird word choice, killed. Less than six months later, word went out that Paladin Press was shutting down. They put out another statement saying, thanks for the trust you placed in us for the past 47 years. It has been quite a ride. We reached out to Lund's wife, who also helped him run Paladin. She was in charge of the business after he died, and ultimately made the decision to close the doors. She declined an interview. You know, he could have just been on a nice, leisurely trip with his wife. But the myth of Peter Lund, of the man who kept a handgun on his desk, who almost invaded Cuba, who fought for the First Amendment, 
for information to stay free, no matter the cost. The myth of the most dangerous publisher in America. It's never going to die. The editor of Amoland News wrote, quote, Who knows what Pater was up to in Finland on his last trip? But I am comforted to know he remained dangerous, right to the sudden end. Next, on Hitman. I represent a woman named Bobby who was the survivor of an attempted murder attack by a would-be hitman who had bought a book about how to do that. The other time hitman was used. Horrifying scene ensued in which this young would-be killer man had a serrated type wire that was used to slit throats. And he went after with that. And the battle to get it off the shelves forever. This shit cannot be protected by the First Amendment. That was the legal principle that we follow. Literally. This shit can't be protected. That's a slippery slope because there will be always someone who is disgusted, astounded, and aggrieved by the content of someone's speech. Hitman is a production of iHeartRadio and Hit Home Media. It's produced and reported by me, Jasmine Morris. This episode was reported by Michelle Lance. Mark Lotto is our story consultant. Executive producers are Mangesh Hatikudur and me. Mixing by Michelle Lance and Jacopo Penzo. Our fact checkers are Austin Thompson and Natsumi Ajisaka. Special thanks to Lucas Riley. Our theme song by Elise McCoy. An additional music written and produced by the students at Dime. Powered by the Detroit Institute of Music Education. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.